You're listening to the Mashup Americans. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lehrer. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. And Rebecca, the rest of this year, this is our this is our late incoming goal of 2023, is we are going to set boundaries. And I know we say that all the time, but this time it's really happening, and we are going to rest. Oh, cool. Um, cool, cool, cool. But we're going to do it, right? <laughs> totally in. I first, though, like I have this huge to-do list mm. with like that well multiple on different platforms mm-hmm. there's a written ones there's the ones in a in a apple notes that are shared mm-hmm. there's a trello board mm, so trello i'll just board. get through those and then and then boundaries is that is that how that works well first you have to plan your parents <laughs> vacations and then also uh i need to make somehow grocery list for the next 7 months of my life that's right mhm Mm-hmm. But also in some ways, this feels just like champagne problems, caviar dreams, to quote, you know, Robin, whatever, from um, the lifestyles <laughs> of the rich and famous. Uh, I won't do my Australian accent right now. But, you know, mashups don't get stressed, right? You know, if you're an immigrant to this country, you're not being like, I'm so stressed. You just are stressed. You're just doing it. And State you've probably being. been been through many layers of root shock and, and change and and all of that. And you're just you're just doing it. So there's no acknowledgement of the impact it's happening because you you can't do that. You know, yeah. this is what we talked about in Grief Collected. So then it's like, you know. I need a massage. I'm tired. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But if if nothing else, what is the great American dream is so that we can continue to evolve. That's right. And also there's maybe no word for being stressed out because it's a state of being. But there's also like not that many words for being relaxed and happy. And I would like that in my life. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's the kind of thing. It's not German. You know how they're always like, of course, there's a German word for oh, that's I, I hate that person <laughs> because they were rude to my mom or something. There's just one <laughs> long word. Because they have one long tooth yes yeah like who do we think has a, a word for just all the words for just being happy <laughs> i want i Bhutan. want uh, Bhutan, finnish people yeah. oh yeah. well so what we are learning about taking care of ourselves about actually resting which gives ourselves back to ourselves is mm. that it's not just massages and manicures though we love massages and manicures it's mm. actually setting boundaries getting help Asking for help and, you know, changing the shitty capitalist misogynistic system that is trying to extract every last like ounce of our souls out of us. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 And we are, you know, we're both moms of elementary aged kids and we're in the sandwich generation as well. And we're mashups and we need help. We need help. Yo, so bad. <laughs> so we <laughs> went to an expert. Our guest today is Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She's a board-certified psychiatrist focused on women's mental health and dismantling toxic wellness culture. Her best-selling book, it's so great. It is called Real Self-Care, Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths Not Included. It's out now. Pooja is the clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at George Washington University School of Medicine, and she has a private practice where she treats women struggling with burnout, perfectionism, and disillusionment. And uh, this is, I'm feeling read like a book, like a filthy (laughs) read of me. (laughs) We're so excited to have Pooja here with us today. So, Pooja, we're going to start. 
how do you mash up? I think, you know, when you guys say mash up, you know, thinking about like all of the things that make us who we are. And, you know, me being the daughter, the eldest daughter of immigrant parents. My Both of my parents were born in India. My grandfather on my paternal side immigrated to the United States as a academic because of our caste. He wasn't getting the opportunities that mm. he deserved in India. And so he came here and my dad came with and then my dad went back to India for medical school, had an arranged marriage with my mom. And then she came when she was in her 20s, she left her whole family. So that absolutely kind of informs my life and my decisions now. And what else about me as a mashup? I'm partnered with a white guy and, and I have a little son who is uh, racially ambiguous. And, you know. <laughs> Wait, what is it like if you're not East Asian, what is what's a hapa? What's a hapa version of Indian of Indian? Uh, what if I was uh, like mestizo? <laughs> you know, if you were a white male author, you'd be like caramel latte <laughs> yeah oh god get out of here get out of here the, the word that always comes to mind for me that's the bollywood word is weedish Weedish. oh Weedish. Well, that's mm. like the what's that fair and lovely the like skin lightning <laughs> nonsense so like crap well speaking of white supremacy yeah. um, we're gonna get into we're it dive right in yeah but i think one thing i just want to start with which is we can also make this into a psychiatric therapy session for me, but <laughs> I'll try not to. It's just hard. Uh, is that I am a person who likes to make things happen. And I think that's why I love to read acknowledgments in books. Mm. I'm the first person that Amy has ever known that reads acknowledgments. I think most people don't. She has also discovered acknowledgments of like me in books because yeah. the first thing she does is flip to the and I was like what I was there <laughs> I, I feel like it's very telling of like h how people think about the work I mean you're and so you know how it's they think the behind of, the scenes yeah who makes things happen and I'm yeah. curious about yeah. who it is like the actual people yeah. sometimes if I if I would know them but more the whole thing and so and then the, the flip to my own therapy uh, session here is that <laughs> I was acknowledged in this book <laughs> And I was like, is is that all I want? Maybe like to be acknowledged ever in life. Yes. Is that why we're all here? Is that, I, I just wanted to be acknowledged. So thank you for acknowledging me. And with acknowledgement of that, uh, we have so much to talk about with your book, what boundaries look like, what taking care of ourselves looks like as mashups. But Amy wants to start with something. Okay, mm -hmm. I need okay. to start with something because your book, Real Self Care, is so clear and so great and there's so many deep things to dive into and tools for us but most importantly I need to learn about orgasmic meditation and like I know we're not trying to join a cult here today and that you may have already done that but like I have serious questions about what this is and can you please teach us about it and um, like what are the your I, wait question do you want to know like the good stuff which is like how do we orgasmically meditate or, ab I just or about, know the, about cult. the whole concept of orgasmic meditation. Okay. And then we can go from there. And I bet just hearing the words, I'm like, well, I can see why one would join a cult <laughs> that is centered on orgasmic meditation. Yeah. Well, we're diving right in. So there's tons of places where you can, you know, you can do the Google, you can, you know, see what it's all about. For me, what was really interesting was 
like we were talking about mashup, you know, I came from a South Asian family that's super patriarchal, right? Um, being the eldest daughter and sort of having all the rules of what girls are allowed to do and not allowed to do and what boys are allowed to do and not allowed to do. That was sort of always informing my upbringing and how I thought of myself. And then I went to Penn for undergrad and was a women's studies major and took all these classes and learned all this stuff. And I guess all that to say, like, I was always kind of like a little, I had that spark of like Mm -hmm. rage, right? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I went into medical school, thought I was going to be an OBGYN, but ultimately realized that I didn't like being in the OR. I didn't want to be a surgeon. I wanted to talk to people. But then I found that psychiatry wasn't what I thought it would be. Like there's obviously so many inconsistencies and injustices and contradictions in psychiatry. All that to say, once I left mainstream medicine and and found like this group, you know, that was talking about orgasmic meditation and like pleasure and spirituality and sensuality and kind of putting it on this pedestal, like saying that like we're worth, we're allowed to have that. Mm. Um, it was like, it was so compelling to me. It was, it was like, felt like what I had been kind of looking for my whole life. And and that's why I put the whole story of that part of my life. I mean, this was about almost more than a decade ago at this point. I put that up front in the book. I decided to kind of really share that in the introduction because I wanted everybody who read Real Self Care to understand that I was coming to this not as only a psychiatrist, but also somebody who's like very much gone down the deepest rabbit hole of Mm woo-woo wellness like Mm -hmm. who just went really really far and 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 came out the other side well you know what there's something too with this and we'll get into more through this but what I also hear is like and I think we can all relate to this how much we are in our heads and then you literally are like I'm studying the science of your head kind of your you know like how to help your head and your brain and what all, but like that we do live in bodies and mm-hmm. trying to connect all of that together has is like i i think as first gen as like there's lots of of layers of unpacking there but we are still trying to do that all the time well yeah. into our 40s like trying to be like no pleasure or or loving your body or accepting your body or, or even you know, being in your body, just being mm-hmm. in embodied. Yeah, right. Right. And that was the whole premise with with everything that this group was doing, that it was sort of accessing and being mm-hmm. connected to your body, which was really compelling and powerful. And what I learned on the other side of it is that there is no magic panacea. It's not like you just learn one practice or find one guru or do some diet and then everything's fixed. It still actually comes back down to making hard choices in your life. There's no shortcut. I mean, it's a very depressing message, to be honest. (laughs) There's no shortcut. (laughs) There is no shortcut, but it does at least, I think, clarify this idea, like everything that both of you had just been saying about being in your body and like being the eldest daughter being a woman, being an immigrant kid, the definitions of almost all of those things are they're defined by like women sublimating all of their pleasure. It's just like you cannot really be like a good daughter if you're putting your body and your pleasure or just like earthly delights first, because that's like diametrically opposed to to being a good Indian daughter. 
Correct. Right? Like right. other people right. are always supposed to come first. And I just think that can be more explicit as a mashup, but it's actually like all of women. Yes. 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 And that's one of the things with real self-care that once you kind of dive into it and start to like kind of look at whether it's boundaries or compassion or like values, what you really want in your life, there's so many layers because it shows up in certainly big choices. Like for me, it was like, oh, you know, am I going to be a doctor? Am I going to get married? What school am I going to go to? Right. All those sort of like big choices in your life. But it shows up in the day to day little stuff, too. Like, am I going to give myself permission to like actually eat lunch today? Like right. mm. at a table away from my desk. Right. And how mm-hmm. that is actually, there's embodiment in that. that there's rebellion in that small decision. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just scarfing down our sad desk salad. <laughs> right. Oh my right. God. Sad the way that salad. I spent my entire 20s with a sad <laughs> desk salad. Yes. Oh, the yes. worst. Well, listen, we, again, first gen, we're going to really get into boundaries today. One thing is, how did you tell your immigrant parents that you were in a cult or that you were that you were joining this group? And again, you talk about this all very explicitly in your book and how it's just as you just said, you know, it was already 10 years ago. And so we're not trying to deficit frame here. We're just like it's like the extreme of and I think that's part of how you talk about it. It's like. The extreme, but it's actually at its core what we're all seeking is we're trying to find that answer for this, whether it's rebellion or or find ourselves in some way. But how did you tell your parents? I mean, that feels so <laughs> hard for us to to do us as mashups. Yeah. You know, this is an interesting question because I haven't thought about this for a long time. I don't even know if I explicitly told them. Mm. It, in the beginning. Uh, I think I just did it. <laughs> did you tell them that you were leaving med school? That's the question I have. Uh, I did. I did. And I honestly, I don't remember. It was residency. Uh, I don't remember exactly how. I've probably blocked it out. So one of the reasons that I made the decision to talk about it up front in the book was because it was not the right way. Like, uh-huh. I didn't do it skillfully. It, there was a lot of damage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk to my parents for quite a while. And it, it was me me leaving my marriage, leaving residency, and joining the cult was all kind of one big storm, one mm-hmm. big mm. sort of rupture and extreme boundary setting for me again like you said Rebecca this is like a very this is not the healthy way to do it (laughs) don't follow in my footsteps folks but it was the only way that I knew how because at that point I was like 27 28 and I had spent my whole life until that point doing all the things I was supposed to go to the Ivy League school become a doctor get married do all the things not to and I I don't want to say that like Look, those were all my choices. I was and I was an adult. And my parents were as Indian immigrant parents, they were pushing me in that direction because it offered stability, it offered prestige, it offered a certain amount of safety. Yep. So it wasn't wrong or misguided on their behalf. And totally. there was a huge amount of privilege too that enabled me to do all those things that you know, I didn't have student loans because of how much my grandparents had saved. Right. So, 
you know, there's yes, a lot of privilege. Of but I had never so openly said no to them. Yeah. You know, and this so it was just kind of like all pent up. And then there was this big sort of rupture. You know, we're talking now about what it feels like to be in our body. And sometimes uh, like Rebecca will hear me. I was like, oh, today's one of those days. I'm just going to I'm going to peel all my skin off. Like I like it feels like you just cannot be contained anymore. And I wonder what did that feel like for you? Um, Certainly there was a lot of anger at sort of all of the establishment institutions, whether that was family, whether that was medicine and psychiatry. So it felt like a breaking free. Hmm. And again, in a way that was very dramatic and, and hurt a lot of people too, right? So it was a breaking free at the expense of others. But for me, it felt like there was a liberation, mm-hmm. finally kind of like being able to exert myself or my voice too and processing that everything that came after that sort of the the trauma of it but then also the freedom of it too and the liberation that I felt is sort of what led to writing real self-care in that kind of this realization that there's a distillation of this like yes that was very much an extreme but there's ways that if you learn how to do it in much smaller steps if you implement those tiny little pieces that's the healthy way. You talked about this idea, which we both loved so much, about getting curious about your mm-hmm. anger and microdosing your capacity to receive. It was so powerful to hear that idea about getting curious and then we can talk about our capacity to receive, but even thinking about it as <laughs> microdosing or separating it into like, yeah, like it doesn't have to be the extreme but we all feel often, right, Like that we need that extreme. There's something where yeah. you're like, that's the only answer is I'm just going to, like, pull it all. But, I mean, I think that's, like, the whole, the one where the woman runs away in New York City. Oh, yeah. Fleischman is in trouble. Oh. Fleischman. Like, don't we all kind of have this fantasy of just, like, running away? But then they find her in her own apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. Because I remember actually before, now that we're talking about it, there was a moment, like a couple, I don't know how long before it was, where I did have, I said, I want to go just live on a farm. You know, I just want to be somewhere where things are simple, right? And it's this fantasy, this like longing for like a life that isn't complicated, like almost Mm -hmm. like a life that is not a mashup. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. I get that feeling sometimes when I think about people that I went to high school with that stayed in my hometown, which was a predominantly white, centralish Pennsylvania, upper middle class town. And people who, you know, whose parents grew up in that town and got married to each other. And, you know, they're they're all it's it's like their place. It's like a home. Mm-hmm. And and you mm-hmm. stay there and you get married and you have kids and you're part of the community. And and I understand like that there's struggles and things too, but it just feels so much less complicated. Where somebody like me, we're talking about mashup, right? Where I have to like go do all these things to prove myself to the world, to yeah. prove myself to myself, right? Mm-hmm. Well, also the ancestral stuff, like your grandfather yes. coming. Yes. For, yes. And he know. had to come here because of his caste, because right. he had to find another way forward. Yeah. Right. And whether your family, I assume, told that story to you, but they also. It's like the other things that are untold, right, about why that then you have a job, a certain kind of role in this family to like 
Right. You know, in a casteless society. I'm putting big quotes around that about America. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, now you get have to cement our our class, basically. Right. right. Have fun with that, Pooja. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, Pooja. Um, have fun at Penn. I know you want to live on a farm. Right. <laughs> I do sometimes feel this way about men. Where I'm like, well, what was Amy saying the other day? You were saying about like some people don't have inner monologues and you're like, what is happening in your brain? Is it just oh, quiet? Oh, they don't have an inner monologue. So is it just quiet all the time? Yeah. <laughs> what are right, you talking right. about? I, I mean, I feel that with Justin sometimes where he will just, he, you know, because he's a white man, you know, where it's like he will just think something and want to do something and just do it. Yeah. Just do it. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't understand that at all. Or I ask them about their bodies, like at least my... I have a slim white man husband uh, who is adorable. The we best, love him. the best, <laughs> He's the, best the best ever. But I'll be like, oh, how, do you ever like think about how your like shirt is touching your, how it feels when it touches your waist or hips or like body? And he's like, no. And I was like, mm, mm, I need you to know that like a good forty percent of any woman's energy that they don't even realize they're using is about how their their clothes are touching their body like moving right. it around, you know and just like the amount of energy used for shit like that to you know c- could be harnessed in different ways basically could be but i think that the thing about curiosity that is so striking is that it really pairs with this idea that i think you nail in the early parts of your book about how so often Women are trying to run away from themselves and that that's what they use what you call faux self-care to do. And first of all, it just it makes me so sad that Mm -hmm. that could be true. And I also if I if I if I let myself get agitated by that, I'm like, oh, oh, she's fucking right. And you talk also a lot about shame in your book, which I think is really powerful. But the idea that we can allow ourselves to ask questions about like why we want to run away so bad and we don't have to feel ashamed of that or like we don't have to feel bad for that or somehow externalize that into like getting a pretty manicure. I or, do like, have being a good like, manicure though right you now. You do have a really good one right now. Yeah. And I love one. But does it change anything? No. Well, it doesn't change the like this idea of like the systems didn't change. Right. Yeah. What are some of the challenges, like I meant, as you outlined about doing these, you know, what you say, crystals and cleanses and bubble baths like that and manicures that are they band-aids even? Or how would you describe that versus like what it really means to take care of yourself? Yeah. So I kind of think of it. I have these two buckets. I I name sort of the faux self-care, which is sort of like the consumer based uh, products and services, whether it's the um essential oils or the massage or the mani-pedi or the retreat, right? Um, or even the productivity solutions like the mm. Evernote or the bullet journals. That one journals. was so rude. So, <laughs> so rude. We were so upset. People got like, very upset about that. You? People are very upset about that. I was like, did she just say illusion of control here? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Like it's not, I'm not trying to demonize those things, but I'm trying to say that we use them as tools. whereas Real self-care is internal principle work that actually changes you on the inside. Mm. And when you're changed on the inside, that naturally impacts your relationships, whether that's with your partner, with your kids. And then it even has the potential to impact your communities, 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the larger social structures. So, but so it's 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 not that faux self care is bad. It's that it's less about the thing, and it's more about the process that you take to mm. get to the thing. Mm. So, if we just take an example, so like getting a massage. You can imagine two very different ways to get a massage. You can have one person who is on the massage table and hasn't set any boundaries, hasn't had any hard conversations, hasn't thought more deeply about why this massage is important to her. And she's on the massage table and she's like gritting her teeth the whole time and worried that maybe she's not asking for the right pressure. Maybe she's Mm. not making the best use of her time. 20 minutes in, she's like, oh my God, the massage is already over. I can't believe I wasted all this time in my head. After the massage, she comes back to her desk and has like 50 emails and feels like she needs to respond to everything quickly to make up for the lost productivity. That's faux self-care because you haven't internalized any of the actual deeper process of what do I really need in my relationships, in my life, in my work, and how do I make that happen versus somebody who has thought deeply about, let's say, embodiment, as we're talking about, and notice that when they make time for body work in their life, they are able to feel more in touch and grounded, and they're able to make more clear choices about what they want and how they spend their time. So then they went and they actually mm-hmm. maybe had a hard conversation with their partner about the division of labor, or maybe they decided to... Mm have a hard talk with their boss about, you know, signing off from email at 4 p.m. on Wednesdays so that they had more or at least some discretionary time where there was also childcare so they could do something for themselves. And then they went to the massage and they were able to actually be there and be present and mm. come back and not feel like they needed to make up for the lost productivity. Mm-hmm. And because they had those conversations with other people in their lives, it has the power that I'm not saying every time it's going to be some sort of revolution. No, but it at least has a chance because when we stay in just the bubble bath, it's a commercial solution. It doesn't do anything to change anybody else. But when it's a personal solution and it changes how you think about what you deserve and how you spend your time, then we at least have the chance of getting to collective action. Mm-hmm. What do you think one of the the like bridges there is? Like if what's the chance there? So if if let's say we all get okay, I don't want to use the word really good at doing good real self-care. <laughs> as I would a like model, an a. as a model minority, I do feel sad halfway through every massage when they flip when they ask you to flip over yes, and I'm like, yes. "Oh no, it's halfway done." So I felt that was also rude of you, but when you say that, thinking about what some of the opportunities are for collective action are yeah. there, is it knowing that this isn't just us and something that we created the problem, that it's like a system wide thing that then allows us to feel less pressure and be connected with other other folks who are experiencing this or what what's the opportunity there? Yeah, well, I have some examples in the book. I work with women in my clinical practice. So most of my patients are pregnant and postpartum. So a lot of the examples in the book have to do with that stage of life, but it can apply in lots of different places. So a patient who learns how to set boundaries and understands that she needs more support in the home and urges her partner to ask for parental leave. Mm. And in that case, 
the company said yes, right? It's not the case all the time. Right. But if she, if my patient hadn't taken those steps to set boundaries and to ask for what she needed, we would have never gotten to that place. Totally. Or another patient who actually takes a leave of absence from work, a mental health leave of absence and for her OCD and also some other issues that are going on in her family. And then when she comes back, she's actually open about the fact that it was a mental health leave and finds out that there's other folks in her company who have family members with OCD and they start Mm. an ERG Mm. in the group to support other folks who are dealing with mental health issues. And at her next annual review, she's actually praised and gets more of a budget to support this. Hmm. So it led to cultural change. Again, Mm. these are, this isn't every time, but this is what's possible. And, you know, I think that's the, this is a tension in my work because I am a psychiatrist. I work with people one-on-one. It's sort of like a boots on the ground, like at the individual level. I do think that, like, I don't think that the solution can only be top down. Because in order to get to top down, we need people to understand that it's not their fault. Mm. And so many of the people, folks that come to my practice, when they first come in, you feel like it's your fault, right? You don't have the vocabulary or the words to talk about things like white supremacy or capitalism or microaggressions or any number, any of these things, right? And so when we actually kind of like make that known, then you come to see like, well, I do have some agency here, not Mm. all the power, no, by no means. But like, you know, in the book, I talk about the dialectic and dialectical behavior therapy, kind of both and that both can be true. And so I don't mean for this to be like the answer, because so much of my book and because of my own experience is basically saying there is no like the answer, but more that it's like a start of a different type of conversation. Mm hmm. I think that that's actually something that struck both of us is if we could talk a little bit more about dialectical thinking and that concept as as applies just to like being a mashup. Yeah. And it's even like like what you were saying earlier, like it would I, maybe I would have less to run away from or less pressures or less of this like thing inside of me that felt so much tension if it were just easier. Like if you just were like a fifth generation white kid that grew up where your parents and grandparents grew up in central Pennsylvania. And that like, even that being a mashup for us, we've always conceived of as, as, as a dialectical way of being like, it is both hard to be rooted in traditions that you love and also many of which you just hope to like expel from your life, but you can't. So then how do we do the work to transform to like get to the other place? And I think that that's like, It's very hard to hold that in your mind, even though like for Rebecca and I, it's like really all we want for our lives when especially right now, the world is very black and white. And I wonder like how you think about that, like the dialectical thinking, like in regard to yourself. So one, I think that when we're feeling good, Like in times of stability in our lives, it's a lot easier to access dialectical thinking, right? Mm. You know, in this conversation, I'm thinking about what I was talking about with my parents, right? Mm. And the pressures that I faced and kind of being able to acknowledge like they did the best that they could. They did more than the best that they could, right? And I also felt like I had to break free. Both are true. Mm -hmm. And once I was able to get to a place in my life where I felt better from a mental health standpoint, I'm able to 
so much more easily hold that mm-hmm. and grieve, right? Because you do have to grieve and also mm-hmm. accept and have love and generosity and compassion. But when I'm feeling less than or stressed or depressed or anxious, my mind wants to separate things into black and white and put things into categories and to really know the answer and to hold on to one answer, right? Mm. So I think maybe reframing it to, as opposed to like a black and white thing of like, I can practice dialectical thinking or I can't, to understand that there might be times in your life when you can, and there might be other times in your life where it's harder. And when it becomes more difficult, that's when you know that you're struggling Mm. a little bit, right? I think conversations like this are so important because I, I think that, yeah, like you said, we live in a world right now where everything lacks nuance and and everyone wants to just focus on sort of like you know the black and white and the 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 rush to kind of come to what's the answer Mm -hmm. but the reality is that there's so many layers in our lives and 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 for the mashup experience in particular so much of what we're doing is healing and healing is a process of grief and acceptance and Mm. reconciling paradoxes Mm. and truths that are seemingly in contradiction. Like it's just, it's an ongoing journey. There's so many of them. I know, I know. It's so, there's so much. And, and it's like, it's what gives us our superpowers too, you know? So both, right? And you don't, you don't, end up wanting to do things in the world unless you've had some sort of trauma like nobody right like yeah the reason for change and bigger things and different things comes from people who have sore spots and hard spots right Mm. i think something that rebecca and i have thought about a lot especially like I think maybe like in the past year or two we've both been talking a lot about like our scar tissue Mm. just being like oh oh that was my scar tissue or like oh that was a bruise that I poked by accident or my my therapist calls Mm. it an old wound old Mm. wounds Mm -hmm. and part of it I think has been just like as I'm just gonna uh, psychoanalyze myself and Rebecca right now but that like we (laughs) finally we're like now at a point where we have done so much personal work where like it's not that the wounds have necessarily healed or like gone away it's just like oh we're very aware of where they are now yeah so we can treat them tenderly yeah and you can be curious about them we were talking about curiosity right there's like a meta-ness to it it's not as raw yeah and the cycle of it is shorter right like you yeah you you see it you you're aware of it and you kind of Right. The what we were talking about, the awareness of anger or curiosity about a feeling. And you can you can like mine it quickly versus like, oh, there are other feelings which are like maybe in this stage of our lives as with young children. Right. There's a different versions, which will will, I think, probably only understand in 20 more years from now, which was like, wow, that really inflamed me in this way. And I have no idea why, because I'm just so in it or the constancy of that. That's a different one than my relationship totally to myself versus like as a parent. Right. Like and I do think some of this what you're talking about, the finding the reason or the way or the 
that you approach some of the tools that you're, you know, especially like I, I even I found myself saying out loud to my kids, I was like, okay, I'm feeling very short right now because I did not exercise. And for me, exercise is like a way of getting out energy that is very specific that I really need. And so I'm like, I, uh, and I just like said it out loud. I love that you said that to your kids. Yeah. And like, and I, it didn't stop me from being short or, but I did say it. <laughs> but and, they understood why. Yeah. yeah which is huge. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know if they understood, but they were heard the words. <laughs> they were exposed to, to that idea. Yes. 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 And, and so it was almost like I hadn't been so acutely aware of that even for myself. I was mm. like, oh, I feel like, cause I didn't move enough. And I didn't like sweat in a way that not because of calories and not because of weight, but just because that is a kind of that I need that my blood flow that way. It's it yeah. feels good to me. Kind of a lot of what we're talking about here is psychological flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that's a concept that in real self-care I keep coming back to. It's like the skill of being able to work with your mind, mm. like the curiosity, mm. the the being able to feel something hard and then ask yourself questions and give yourself space between not just kind mm. of like rushing to action or rushing to some sort of conclusion, but where you can feel or think a hard thought, let's say guilt, but then say, oh, okay, like I felt that. It's not it's not the end of the world, right? I can engage with it, be curious about it, learn more about myself as opposed to thinking it's just sort of like a damning you know, report card score. And you had a, there's two specific pieces of language that you used, whatever, words? That's another way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> there are phrases that you phrases. use in this. Mm-hmm. One is in the book, eudaimonic. Eudaimonic. Uh, eudaimonic mm-hmm. well-being. Mm-hmm. Can you t- define that for us? Here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eudaimonic well-being is a theory of well-being, that says that understanding your values and your purpose and the meaning of your life is what gives you the most well-being. So aligning your actions and your relationships and how you spend your energy with what means the most to you leads to a good life. This is in contrast to hedonic well-being, which prioritizes happiness or the absence of suffering. Mm. So hedonic well-being is sort of equivalent to like getting that like 600 calorie Starbucks drink that tastes really good in the moment, you know, kind of negates all your stresses and pressures um, and, you know, feels good. Whereas eudaimonic well-being says that, no, actually it's about understanding what you really care about and naming that and then doing those things. Mm. And I also just want to say one thing too, is that we're all human. So like, of course we also all engage in hedonic well-being. Right. Right. Like, so don't, please don't shame yourself if you're Mm. like, well, but I really like my Starbucks drinks. Like, like I'm not trying to take those away from you. (laughs) Extremely interested in my hedonic side. Yeah. That is a big priority for me, but I see the appeal. Yeah. I think another thing you were talking about was cognitive diffusion strategies. And this seems to me what you're saying, like the incremental curiosity and questioning. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So cognitive diffusion basically refers to being able to, quote unquote, 
diffuse from hard feelings and hard thoughts. So one of the examples that I use in the book is like with guilt, right? Mm -hmm. Especially for women, anytime you set a boundary, anytime you say no or push back, you automatically make yourself the bad guy and feel guilty. So cognitive diffusion says instead of sort of fusing with that guilt, instead of believing that that guilt is powerful, like all powerful, there are other strategies that you can use to help your mind create distance from the guilt. You're not turning off the guilt because we live in a world that is deeply inequitable and unfair. So Mm. you will always feel guilty because society has made women and women of color feel like everything is their job. So yes, you will feel guilty when you set a boundary. That's not your fault. So to get to the cognitive fusion, one of the tools to access that is to think of like metaphors. And that's a way to kind of work with your brain to just create a different context for it. So one of the metaphors I use in the book is to think of guilt as a faulty check engine light Mm. on your car. So imagine that, you know, you take in your car to get service, everything's fine, the oil's changed, but there's just one of those lights on the dash. Mm. It keeps going off no matter what you do, but Mm. it doesn't actually give you any meaningful information. It's broken, (laughs) but it's still going off, right? So you just, it's just background noise. This check engine light is always on. (laughs) It's always on. It's a lemon. This car's a lemon. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, it's like, it's a background noise. And so that's one example where you're kind of, again, you're working with your thoughts, you're working with your brain in a different way. Mm. And and we call that diffusion. This comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. This isn't my idea. This is coming from like, you know, therapy that is evidence based. And it again, it's a way to like loosen things up. So you're not Mm. just like beating yourself up all the time. Can we talk about just briefly about guilt? For mashups, like you give a few examples about for you as a South Asian woman. But, you know, can we just dive into that a little? Because we guilt is a major theme in our work, always has been. It's like a section of our website, literally. Oh, we're like 87 percent guilt. The rest is, you know, is lattes, but, you know, a lot of guilt. guilt. Um, Something so specific. Whenever I meet people who they don't have guilt, I'm like, I don't, what? I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't, it's truly like an alien species. Can you give a couple of like examples for you from your own life as as you do in the book about Mm -hmm. how you've navigated using some of these strategies and, Mm -hmm. and like, the types of guilt I think our listeners will really resonate with, like things that have have bubbled up the that that you've had to kind of silence the killjoys, as you said, like, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, the example that I use in the book was my first marriage and that time in my life when I was, you know, in my early mid 20s. And it was sort of like all my best friends were getting married and my parents expected me to get married. Right. And especially in South Asian culture, you know, that kind of that milestone, that feeling of like, oh, now our daughter has, you know, our daughter is someone else's responsibility. And I think, you know, I talk about this in the context of boundaries, actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because I didn't know how to set that boundary. I didn't even know that 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 I wasn't None of this was at the conscious level at that time. This is all, you know, we were talking about how uh, now we're able to sort of be a little bit more curious about our wounds 
at that mm-hmm. time, this was all a wound. I didn't know. There was no like you were strategy. Being, you, were or, part, you were just one big wound. I was one big wound. Yes. Yeah. I was one big wound. Yes. I think that's fair. So the, the reason that I didn't set the boundary was because of the guilt, mm. right? Mm. The guilt, the fear of the guilt mm. oh, so was what prevented me. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem there is that the longer you let that run, the worse the damage is on the other side. But then here's, yeah. an- here's another addendum, is that <laughs> when you've done the work... And you do Mm -hmm. set those boundaries or you say them very clearly. Mm -hmm. People are still mad at you. They're mad (laughs) or they don't even know what you're saying. They're not, you know. Psychologically minded. Correct. That that you say. I'm not going to be a doctor. No. (laughs) You say, I can't can't come to that trip. I mean, you had an example in your book. Mm -hmm. I'm unable to join that family function. It just doesn't work for our family. And then you hear their story to someone else about you. She's just, I don't know why. And I'm like, no, I told you exactly why. I wasn't, there was no confusing language. Like they can't hear it because they've like projected a whole nother story on it. But you said exactly the words that you meant. And so that's have been, an, uh, for me, a very interesting challenge of boundary setting, which is like, yeah. I set a boundary, but nobody heard it. Yes. I love Mm -hmm. this. I think this is like very mashup specific, Mm. especially in dealing with um, families, Mm. right? And different degrees of cultural awareness and psychological awareness Mm. and ways of being in the world. So I think one thing I would say is that anytime you're setting a boundary, there's always two processes that are going on. There is the just the actual like technical communication of the boundary like what you're describing Rebecca of like saying like this is our you know and short and sweet and here's the thing and then there's this whole other side of dealing with your emotional response yes and Mm -hmm. any emotional response that's coming from them yes and the thing is that you can't expect to get your emotional needs met from the family member who you're setting the boundary with yeah so what you're saying right now is sort of like but they're not voicing understanding to me. Yes. Like I explained, but they're not coming back and saying, yes, that makes sense. They've actually like totally misconstrued it and like made up something else, which they will do. They will do. But that's not your business. That's not up to you. Like that's just what it is. And you let that go. But that's the cost, right? Yeah. And and so in the book, I talk about how boundaries, a boundary isn't, always a no. I say that the boundary is the pause. Mm. And in the pause, you decide yes, no, or negotiate. Mm. And and you're doing that mental calculus. Right. Is the no mm. worth it? Because you know there's going to be drama, right? Sometimes the no isn't worth it. And if the no's not worth it right at this particular instance in your life, then you mark it for yourself and you say, six months later, I want to be at a place where the no is more accessible and maybe there's less drama with the no. Every family is different though. So you have to, like, I think cultural understanding is really important here because there's some Mm -hmm. families in which you actually can't even communicate that boundary because communicating verbally or over email or text, the boundary is too inflammatory. Yeah. Oh, look, 
Here's my hand. It's being raised in the air. <laughs> you just have to act. You just have to act as if you've communicated it because the cost and the like the way that it inflames is is, is actually counterproductive. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, Pooja, that's so I feel so deeply about, you know, how specific this kind of guilt is to mashups and particularly to mashup daughters, because I think it, it's everything from Rebecca having to say no and wanting to be understood to like me being like, okay, well, it turns out maybe the life that I have chosen to live and devote myself to is just not worth it to my parents. You know, that like everything they did, like the way that you describe your grandfather and your and like the building a life here and then doing this and and that you're like, okay, well, thank you for that. And that's what you want for me is not what I want. But it's like a whole life. Yeah. And it feels like an abnegation of like their whole lives because they've been telling you your whole life that they did everything for you. Yep. I'm saying they. I don't know why I'm uh, as if as if this is not involving all of us directly right here. It's so funny as you're talking, I'm having an association to in college when I was in college, my mom would bring me these Tupperwares of Indian food. Oh. Mm-hmm. Every yeah, week. You think that my roommate Gita and I didn't get we from New York City where I was in college, from yeah. Dallas, Texas, we would get uh, uh overnighted yeah, it was anyways, yeah. it was a great thing for me personally, but go on. <laughs> and then and then and it was always in the, you know, because we were an immigrant family. It was in those cool whip containers. Yes. Oh, 100 percent. Right? That were like dyed a little orange yep. on the Turmeric, inside. <laughs> Turmeric dyed to cool whips. And I would have to keep all of those cool whip containers and return them. And I would feel so guilty if I mm. didn't keep the containers. And then when I didn't eat the food, but the containers, I felt guilty about the containers. Yeah. Mm. My God. We were just talking about we should have a guide (laughs) on our site for like or what are the ways that you recycle or like it's sort of in in the spirit of uh, environmental stuff. How many times do you wash a Ziploc bag? Yeah, or like (laughs) where do you keep the bags (laughs) that are left over from whatever shop? Mm -hmm. And mine is just Mm -hmm. like there's like a bag under the sink with all the bags in it. Just like bags and bags and bags. bags. Neil's always like, how many bags in a bag can you have? Uh, You're like, white man, you don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) But like that's your level when you're like in your early 20s and that's the level of guilt that you feel, then how just again to imagine being able to say to a parent, this life that you have dreamed of for me is not the life that I want for myself. Like it's just it's soul crushing. (sighs) Mm hmm. And I think it, part of it's soul crushing for yourself and you kind of hold, I felt like I, I, the whole, that like sublimating, the same thing about like pleasure. It's just like you mm-hmm. hold it back because you feel responsible for their souls. Mm-hmm. It's a duty, you know, it's duty mm-hmm. and it's enmeshment. And it's also like culture, right? A more communal cultures, right? Like you, you represent your family in this way. So... It's, gosh, it's tough. There's so many different <laughs> ways to feel guilty. And, but I will say as a person r- filled with guilt, I also, and but I, with this, this the, there's a branches of this mashup boundary guilt tree that we're, we're drawing here. And mine is a family that actually, I think I'm living the life that they did dream for me, <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah. And mm-hmm. there's still so many versions of it, like marrying 
non-Jewish person, which there's many mm-hmm. settings of bound, like, but all, with that, I mean, that was very fraught for me and, mm-hmm. and a lot of pain, but, you know, that has become out so beautifully, but, mm-hmm. you know, like you're saying, like the work, it pays off eventually. Yes. Yes. It's, yes. It, does, it does pay off. And, and, um, What's interesting is Amy actually has a an Asian female therapist specifically oh. for this point of I do of it being hmm. like because of some of the cultural stuff where if you know if someone could say well you just tell them that you're right. and you're like okay cool story oh, are you kidding me <laughs> right. what are you talking tell about? who tell what person <laughs> tell what right. yeah oh I think that I mean that was something so significant and I'm sure some of your patients seek you out the same way like I went on a hunt for a therapist and I was like. They don't maybe have to be Korean American, but they have to be East Asian. They have to be first yeah. generation in America. You know, my therapist is Japanese American. She was has been in two mashup marriages, has mashup kids. Like it, it that was essential for me to have a shortcut mm. to mm. not have to explain yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah, to speak the same language. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think, you know, so one thing, my last question is about boundaries which are, I would say, early in life, like the first 30 some years were probably the scary. Like that was not even a word that like uh, I could say in my mouth. What what would be your tip? Like what's your advice for somebody, a woman who is like, I'm ready. I may be like going to go do my first one or like I'm going to yeah. say the scary thing or I'm going to I'm going to try and do some body work and not be stressed out on the massage table? Like how how does somebody, like what would you say is like somebody's hype woman to setting a boundary? Yeah. So the first is, right, it's the pause, right? It doesn't have to always be no. It could be first setting that pause and thinking in that time, what do I want? What does my body want? What do I really care about? Start small. Like don't take on a big thing. Start with something that's low stakes, like mm. saying no to a friend who you know is not going to lash out on you, <laughs> right? right. Um, like, don't pick your like toxic friend where there's lots of frenemy girl drama. Like, pick somebody who's actually like <laughs> that's a not real your friend. friend. Also, right? Stop that's being not, friends with you. that person. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That's actually the answer. Stop yeah. being friends with that person. But don't pick that as your first boundary. Yeah. Right. Because if you've never done it before, that's going to be fraught. Sometimes it's even like the smallest thing, like you're going out to dinner with people and somebody asks you, what, where do you want to eat? What are you feeling like? And someone else says Mm. sushi and actually saying like, I don't want sushi. Can we pick something else? Like just small challenges. Mm. Mm. Don't actually don't start with your family. Setting boundaries with your family is the hardest thing. So practice a lot in spaces that are uh, safer first where you can just like build the muscle use the Mm. scripts see what happens like just sort of like get into that bodily practice and then and then take it to your family and even when you start with your family start you know with a sibling if there is a nice sibling right like don't start with like the most complicated relationship (laughs) oops Uh, glad we're all we can be together in this. That <laughs> yes. that feels important. That's significant. Um, well, Pooja, this is such a joy. Oh, I love it so much. Thank you so much. Thank and you, Pooja. We'll talk to Thank you so you. soon. It was such a joy. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Pooja, for guiding us through this woolly world of boundaries and saying no. Mm, no. No. That felt crazy. Okay, go no, on. No, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> so, you guys, what is a boundary that you are setting? Our goal for this month as we launch into holiday season is to set a boundary with our family and keep it. We can do it. I have faith. And next week, we're so excited for Jeff Chang, our brother from another mother, the brilliant journalist and historian and expert in all things hip hop and Bruce Lee. He'll be on to talk about why hip hop matters to mashups and how we can get deep on the culture while being true to ourselves. Catch the rest of the ultimate guide to a mashup life. We'll have episodes every week, all fall. Like and follow the Mashup Americans wherever you get your pods and tell your friends. Love you. Bye. This podcast is a production of the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Senior editor and producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Production manager is Shelby Sandlin. Thanks to DJ Rob Swift for our theme song, Salsa Scratch. Additional engineering support by Pedro Rafael Rosado. Please make sure to follow and share this show with your friends. 